So welcome to the Leading on Purpose podcast. My name is Nick Craig, and I'll be leading this podcast with you. My special guest today is Bill George. I've known Bill for almost 15 years. He's become a colleague and close friend, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. He's had the distinction of being a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School since 2004, where he created the probably one of the most popular courses at Harvard Business School for the second year MBAs on authentic leadership. He's also been a board member at some incredible institutions ranging from Goldman Sachs to Novartis to Target to the World Economic Forum. But where I've been able to spend most of my time with him has been on the journey of writing the iconic books on authentic leadership, True North, and the most recent version called Discover Your True North, and the field guide that he and I got to write together. So Bill, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be with you. And thank you for all you've done to advance the whole field of authentic leadership. It's, your work has been really critical in helping develop more authentic leaders throughout the business world, nonprofit world, and other fields. Well, thank you. And I have enjoyed the journey that you and I have been on. And what's interesting is that uh, many times people will sit down with me and they'll sit down with me across from dinner. And they'll say, so how did you, how is it you got to know Bill? So I have my version of the story, but I'd love to hear sort of what is your version for how did we actually end up working together? Well, it, it happened, I think, in 2007, about the time that uh, True North was coming out. Uh, I'd been doing research on this book for uh, two years. I yep. interviewed 125 leaders. And what really came out of it was really the essence of what's important is your life story, the crucibles you face, because until you understand that, you really can't understand what you're called to do, what your purpose is. And so uh, I was creating this course, Authentic Leadership Development at Harvard Business School, which I had no idea would become as popular as it is and continue to have the run it's continued, it has had. But uh, what I thought we needed was a way for people to do deeper work on this subject on their own. We put some questions at the backs, but uh, what was really needed was some form of workbook where people could really dig in on their own, ask themselves tough questions. I also had in, form, in mind a new form of, uh, of teaching, which didn't involve any faculty at all. Uh, we were the first course at Harvard to, uh, to give class credits, yep. uh, where 55% of the time was spent in small groups with five of your peers. Uh, talking about important issues. We needed a workbook to this. So you and I created this personal guide, uh, uh, Finding Your True North. And it took the subject, each chapter, and allowed us to take a semester and work all the way through each of those subjects, uh, both on your own, and then to sit and discuss them uh, with uh, this small group of people. Because uh, as Dan Goldman, our friend, uh, who's the father of emotional intelligence, said, you never really understand your life story until you hear yourself telling it to someone else. And I think people said, well, don't do crucibles at the start <clears throat> because it's too personal, too serious. And I said, no, no, we have to go deep. Otherwise, the group will remain at a very superficial level. And so we made that the second or third session where people 
had to go very deep into the most extreme experience they had in their life. That we found that that was what really shaped them. Some people say, well, what how about positive experiences? No, people are really shaped by the challenges they face when they're all alone and they have to face it on their own. And so in writing about this, people were very, very honest with themselves, but then in sharing with other people, they found I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that said, oh my gosh, you know, I thought my experience were tough. Other people in my group had much tougher experiences. So that personal sharing created a bonding and an intimacy, Nick, because we don't create, connect at the head level, we connect at the heart. As Thich Nhat Hanh once said, the longest journey you'll ever take is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. And I think that's what we try to brought out, bring out the course. It wasn't enough just to be a smart guy who was good and analytical and could run the numbers, run spreadsheets. You really had to know who you were at a deep level. Well, I just wanted to thank you because um, back then, um, that's what you were working on. And I think you invited me. And remember, as we were talking about it, and we felt like we were on the same page. And the idea of turning that into the field book was something that was your idea. And then you invited me to help you along with Andrew McLean to be able to create that. So it has been a very powerful journey. Now, interestingly enough, um, the basic architecture for what authentic leadership is and the key elements to it was something that you had pretty much figured out by the time I met you. And I'm just curious as to why purpose was part of the authentic leadership lexicon for you. Well, since I was a little boy, I wanted to make a difference in the world. And so to me, purpose is everything. And so I started asking a lot of mentees, younger people in particular, what's the purpose of your leadership? You want to be a leader. <clears throat> what do you want to do? Why do you want to do it? They honestly couldn't answer the question. They gave me very superficial answers or they weren't prepared. And what we learned, yes, this is the essence but you need to do a lot of work in order to get there. You just don't say, oh, my purpose is to save lives or to change the planet or get rid of global warming or to have worldwide peace. You really have to go into a lot of deeper work. What are you about and what are you called? It's like, it's a calling is where it comes from. But until you can understand your calling, you have to go deep into who you are and you've got to really get rid of all the, uh, the titles, the, how much money you're going to make and how much you're going to impress the world and go deep into yourself and find out who you are. So we finally labeled that your true north. That's the essence of who you are, right. but it's your purpose is your North star. And so when you understand your true north, you remember we had the compass, the compass really points to your North star, which is your purpose. But until you do that inner work, have that self-awareness, know what your values are they're really essential and uh, how are you going to interact with the world how are you going to deal with and create lasting authentic relationships um, and so to do all those things first before you can really understand this is my purpose at a deeper level so it's not a superficial thing it's not just saying i want to eradicate climate change i mean it's, it's not that simple so it requires a lot of hard work. So you know, when, you were, when you were thinking about the model, because I know you had written the original book, which I really loved, which was called Authentic Leadership, mm -hmm. which was probably my favorite book of yours because it was your personal voice. There was nobody else that was uh, shaping it. And um, 
I was looking at what you were writing back then, and I was looking at the fact that purpose was there. But yeah, I think that, you know, for example, without values, we don't have a true authentic leader. And with a sense of what my motivations are and my sense of self-awareness about how do I impact others. So there's a lot of elements in authentic leadership that are core central to what it means to be an authentic leader. And why do you think, could, can you be an authentic leader without a clear sense of purpose? No, I mean, that's the essence. See, but I think a lot of people get caught up in the demands and prestige of the outside world. Making money is not a purpose, Nick. You know, I try to tell people today that are hoarding their money, you know, you can't take it with you. <laughs> I don't care what your religion is or if you have no religion, yeah, yeah. you can't take it with yeah. you. So having well, a the title, Egyptians, The Egyptians did try to take it with them. But it, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, right? Because yeah, we, we know, good news is, because they try to take it with them, we go to museums to look at it and go, wow, that's pretty cool that they would try to take that with them. <laughs> yes, I saw. King I think there's a Chinese emperor that took a bunch of horses with him as well, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. But, exactly. you know, I really felt that in the 90s, people were getting way too caught up in material aspects, the titles. A lot of CEOs couldn't quit because they said, without a title, I'm nothing. Gee, really? If that is, boy, you're going to have a tough last part of your life. And so you really have to think through, why are you doing all this? Why are you working 70 hours a week? This is hard work. Why are you taking slings and arrows from all over? If you don't have a sense of purpose, you're going to get really worn down. If your only sense of purpose is making it. I've known people that made a lot of money, got to the top, and they said, is that all there is? I said, yeah, if that's what you're going to do, that's all there is. If it's all about title, money, prestige, and Nice newspaper articles. By the way, news, the media will take you down as fast as they built you up. So don't mm. get too caught up in your own press. So now, one of the, my favorite stories of yours that is in the book, but I think just resonates to this whole topic, was you're driving home one day when you were an executive at Honeywell, and you had this deep epiphany, I think. I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to share with us that moment or that experience? Because I feel like that was sort of where purpose sort of grabbed you and sort of shook you. Well, it's like when you see that ugly face in the mirror and it's your own <laughs> and you realize I'm on the wrong track. I've gotten mm -hmm. caught up. I, I was at Honeywell. This goes all the way back to boyhood. And part of my crucible, my story is my father wanted me to make up for his failures. Mm -hmm. So he thought, wow. he told me, Flat out, son, you should be CEO of a major company. Even name the company. I'd like you to be CEO of Coca-Cola. If that doesn't work out, how about Procter & Gamble or emerging little computer company on the East Coast called IBM? There's no trip I, there, right? I mean, what a goodness. I actually worked for all three of those companies for summer jobs. They're all great <laughs> companies. They just weren't my company, but they're great companies, I would say. But I had this idea, I'm going to be CEO. So I went to Honeywell in 1978. I had built the... Uh, from scratch, the consumer microwave oven business that led in industries when there was no industry. And it was like, I was a startup with a large company. But then I went to Honeywell, worked, got a great mentor and uh, had a chance to be president of Honeywell Europe. I came back and I got thrown in a bunch of turnarounds and laying off thousands, and five, 6,000 people here, there, oh. elsewhere. I could do all that. In fact, I was the only one who was willing to step up doing it. That's why they kept giving them to me. By the time I got one turnaround done, they gave me another, and they gave me another. And by the way, these had like nine divisions, six divisions. Nine. Yeah, exactly, yeah. 
And uh, I looked myself in the mirror and said, wow, what are you doing? And what I was doing was running for CEO. I was grabbing for that brass ring instead of being who I was. I was even changing the way I dress, wearing cufflinks, which I don't wear, you know, trying to make an impression. And it wasn't me. And so I went home and told, and I realized inside I was miserable. Outside I was faking it to make it. I was going, hey, everything's great, great opportunity. Meanwhile, my life is actually very good. I've got a good career. My wife has a good career. We got two sons, one in high school, one in junior high, lots of friends. Went home and told Penny what I was feeling. And she said, Bill, I've been trying to tell you that for a year. You just refused to listen. And I was miserable inside. And I was driving so hard to overcome it. Uh, and uh, so I had to pull back and really think, is this what I want to do with my life? What is the purpose of this? If I got to the top of this great company, where would I be? Was there any purpose there? And I realized there was no purpose for me, no real purpose. I wasn't going to make a difference in the world. Making $3.91 a share for me, Nick, is not a purpose. I'm good at making numbers, but that was not a sense of purpose. And uh, so... I thought about it a lot, and uh, I had been asked three times to join Medtronic, <clears throat> and uh, I just turned him down for the third time as a number two position, President Chief Operating Officer, four months before. So I screwed up. Why did you turn him down? Well, because it seemed like a pretty cool. Uh, well, you'll see the ego coming out here. I wanted to be CEO of a big company. Medtronic is a mid-sized company. I think the revenues that year were 750 million. The year I joined. And, uh, you know, and oh, interesting. 10 times that size. So, oh, wow. uh, you know, I, I uh, anyway, I screwed up my courage, called the CEO and said, that job's still open. said, well, we're about ready to fill it, but you can get in line. Well, four months later, I walked through the door as in the number two role, president chief operating officer, and it was the best decision I ever made. Why? Because immediately I sensed a real sense of purpose. I had gotten together as part of my interview process and a little, hotel down in Arizona with Earl Bach and the founder. And that's all he talked about. He didn't even interview me. All he did was want to know, did I get the mission, as he called it. Oh, mission. wow, interesting. Was now, to restore this is, people to full life. What year was this? This is 1989. I had the, the, the flash in the mirror in 88. I joined in 89. But, you know, we'd gotten together in early 89, and, you know, he was talking about, you know, how we're going to restore people to full life, alleviate pain, you know, and extend life for many years. And he was right, and he had this vision, but he, he was not a manager. He needed somebody to run the company, and Wynn Wallen, my, uh, who was then CEO, was gonna retire in two years, so it was a great opportunity. Mm. But the company needed a lot of work, and uh, so it was an opportunity. I could actually have an impact in a shorter period of time than I could in a big bureaucracy. And I was frustrated by that bureaucracy. I could go to Medtronic, I could make a difference, I spent 13 years there, and it was the best 13 years of my business career because that sense of purpose was ever-present. I did literally hundreds of meetings with employees talking about what's the purpose. What, and then my key question is, is your purpose aligned, your purpose aligned mm -hmm. with the company's right. purpose? And if it's not, well. then what are you going to do to bring alignment? Or maybe you're in the wrong place. You know, some guy told me, look, uh, I just, I'm not, I'm not doing this, you know, for some kind of sense of purpose. I'm doing it to get ahead and get the title. I want your job. So, well, uh, that's not a worthy purpose in my opinion. So, so you were, you were 
once again, a beha beha ahead of the curve, because back then purpose was not sexy in any way. No, it wasn't even talked about much, you know? Exactly. So, you know, what's interesting is that these days, um, I have a lot of people call me and they're like, well, we did the purpose thing, but it didn't work. I'm like, well, duh. It's like, if it's, all, if it's on the wall and that's where it stays, then yeah. I think it's going to do. So I was just curious when you were uh, running Medtronics, was there some experiences or events that you felt really helped connect people to that uh, honorable purpose? But in some ways it could be easy for it just to be on the wall someplace. Well, easily we had a mission, a medallion ceremony where our founder, let me grab it here, gave out this medallion, it looks like this, and okay. it has, uh, you know, toward, toward full life, and then on the back it talks about the purpose, contributing to, uh, to human welfare by the application of biomedical engineering to restore life. And uh, Earl Bakken gave me that, and he said, now remember, your purpose is not here to make money for the company or yourself, it's to do this. Okay. And so our metric in Medtronic, in all seriousness, was how many seconds go by until another person is restored to hmm. a full life by a Medtronic product. And when I went there, it was 100 seconds. Today, believe it or not, it's two per minute. So, two per uh, minute, wow. Two per minute, so a huge increase. And that's how we measure ourselves. Because if you talk to people in the production line, you talk to people in the labs, you talk to people in the field, they don't measure themselves by earnings per share. They measure themselves by how many lives they're impacting. So, well, that's, wow. that's about that's very powerful because you know one of the challenges around this whole thing about organizational purpose is people go, well, that's great, but that doesn't connect to anything that's measured. But you're saying that at Medtronics, you actually had a way of measuring and knowing all employees could say, well, here's where we are, here's the gap, and here's where we're going. Yeah, but every company should do that. You know, well, I agree. I mean, I think the point is, is that that's not the case. And I just think that the fact that you guys were working on that. Yeah. Um, and if you look at your role as CEO for that period of time, I mean, do you feel like there's any particular actions or things or moments where you felt that purpose really caused you to make a different decision than if you were just looking at the numbers? Absolutely. We had had the second, we had these mission medallion ceremonies that we, Earl did them, I did a lot of, hundreds of them. But then we also had a holiday party. It was actually called the Christmas party, but we were kind of a all Christian company. I came in there and I, even though I'm Christian, Whatever. These days it's it to the holiday party and brought in other faiths and, and, uh, cause we, that we needed to do that. But anyway, we would have six patients come back and tell their stories. And they, <clears throat> I'll tell you, there were a lot of tears. They told how a Medtronic product would save their life or change mm -hmm. their life. So I remember the first one I went to, there was a young boy who was 18 years old from Pittsburgh who had had cerebral palsy since birth. And uh, he was now uh, at 15 or 16, he tried twice to commit suicide because he said, My, I can't live like this. He's having surgery every year in June when he got out of school go on a body cast for eight weeks, then go back to school. So it was a terrible way to live. So he refused surgery, his body got stiff and rigid. He actually tried to commit suicide. And then all of a sudden, a doctor came up with a Medtronic drug pump. Now, the irony of this drug pump is it was on the list to be shut down because it was oh, wow. about $4 million a year, as all research projects do. But the yeah. uh, company felt, we can't stand this. We need to work on pacemakers and defibrillators and stents. We can't afford to, uh, to do this project. And so uh, we saw this young man 
And he, you know, I had tears in my eyes listening to him, how this had totally transformed his life. I got to know him and uh, followed his life. And he actually came back to my retirement party 13 years later. But the interesting thing about TJ was that, uh, you know, we had changed his life. And so I went back and I said, so what's the problem in this business? Well, there's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of infrastructure. And we reorganized it, put it with another business, consolidated. All of a sudden, it became very, very successful. And it's one of, this is a neurological business, Medtronic, one of those rapidly growing business company has. But uh, we clearly thought about purpose there, not about hmm. our profits. So we kind of but stopped. I mean, it sounds like someone showed up and voiced the purpose at that deeper level. Yes. So it was impossible for you not to feel it. Because I think the, the, you know, for me, the gift of purpose isn't an intellectual exercise. It's, it connects to your heart. And it's, it gets back to that Tigna Khan quote you just referred to of connecting your head to your heart. In some ways, purpose is the ultimate thing that makes that connection. And that individual, was it TJ you mentioned was his name? Yeah. Yeah, was was sort of that expression of that purpose that changed the outcome, not just for him, but for others. And in some ways, that is a, a beautiful expression. But I think in some sense, if you couldn't hear it, it wouldn't have mattered, right? Yeah. In some ways, you were willing to listen. And I think that's the powerful thing as a leader is can you listen to it? Well, I had a son the same age. And I was yeah. thinking about what's there between TJ and my son, Jeff. Oh, wow. Jeff born with a healthy body. TJ was not. And, you know, and now TJ's, you know, going on to do good work. But for me, it really captured, I would tell that story as well, many other stories about what our work was everywhere I went. And this was what inspired our employees. This is not some plaque on the wall. This is in your heart. This is what touches you. So Nick, what's your purpose? And I would ask people that question. Why are you working hard in the front home? Bill, do you realize how many lives we could save if we can invent this product and people would, yeah. they would have little labs at home, you know, subterranean labs at home to try to reinvent products. And, you know, you talk to people in the field, they would drive a hundred miles at night to help a doctor start a surgery the next morning at 630, uh, deliver the product. And so this became, and you tell people in the production lines, this is, man, we could never have a quality problem because somebody might die. So they got it. Uh, now the irony, by the way, Nick, is I wrote a book uh, when I left Medtronic. I had a lot of ideas about leadership. I wanted to write a book. So I wrote a book and it was all about purpose. It was called, and it used Medtronic as an example, creating purpose, creating miracles every, every 10 seconds. Because in those days we'd gotten it down to 10 seconds uh, for a new product. And, uh, and, you know, interesting publishers laughed at me and said, you know, well, this is good for healthcare companies. It doesn't work for anyone else. And I said, really? Boy, I'll tell you, I, if other companies don't have a sense of purpose, if Goldman Sachs didn't commit it to putting their customers' interests above all else, it's going to fail. Or Wells Fargo in the old days was very committed to helping provide financial security yep. and, uh, increasing customers' wealth, not about signing more accounts. So, uh, uh, but I, I see every company has to have a purpose. It's nothing to do with healthcare. Well, yeah. No, so, you know, you have had the beautiful opportunity over the last 20 years of working with a lot of CEOs. You run the CEO forum at Harvard Business School, mm -hmm. getting a book right now that's about some of your insights. I think you're probably one of the, 
when I think of somebody who understands uh, corporate governance and the role of a CEO, you're probably one of the world's experts in that context as far as I know and, and what I've seen. And you know, do you th when you look at these CEOs that you've interacted with over the last 20 years, is there any of them that sort of jump out for you from in a context that it really, you really get a sense that purpose was driving them in a way that maybe not everybody else was able to pull off? Well, someone I know really well, and you know too, is Paul Pullman at Unilever. He's yep. a Dutchman that took over Unilever, I think generally. He was a, was a CFO. He was even worse. He was a CFO. <laughs> so, I mean, he had a double negative, Dutch CFO. Uh-huh. And uh, we met him, and uh, he asked us to put together a program for his leaders because yep. he had come to Medtronic and seen the purpose when he was uh, working for Procter & Gamble as president. Is that where it came from? Okay. And he had come to Medtronic and seen the purpose. So he asked us to come in and would you put together a program on purpose for me and my people? And of course, Nick, I compliment you because I didn't have the resources to do that myself. You did. You put it together. I was trying to be a professor at Harvard Business School. And uh, and so you put it together. We taught together in that program. You carried it on to uh, large numbers of people. I don't know how many have gone through it now, but uh, it started out like 15 people per session. Yep. But it really evolved into purpose because Paul was really thinking loud and clear and mm. about uh, what is the purpose of Unilever. And he cited sustainability. And I remember we did a seminar for what he called his CEO forum for all the uh, yep. senior executives. And uh, I got up and said, you know, sustainability is Unilever's true north. That's what you're really working on. That's your essence. And he asked everyone in the employee, every employee to say, how do you relate to that? You know, how do you relate to climate change? How do you relate to make a difference? How can we use sustainability as a competitive advantage, not as a mantra, not as a, a, an advertising slogan, but how do we make it work in Vietnam? How do we make it work in Poland? So we have products there that are more sustainable products and they help people in a meaningful way. And he turned a consumer products company into a purpose-driven company. You know, I think that's great. Uh, I, 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 I mean, I, you know, you've worked with a lot of different people in a lot of different industries. So, you know, when we look at Medtronics, people can say, well, that's easy because, you know, you guys, by definition, it's pretty direct connection to yeah. saving people's lives. But when you look at a Unilever where they make soap or ice cream, it's a little yeah. more, it's like you really got to work at it to try to figure out what is that deeper purpose. Now, I think Dove was a wonderful example because they changed from being um, a soap literally as a sort of its purpose to being about women's self-esteem, which I thought was really powerful. And they've been able to actually turn that into an economic engine as well. So it's been both and instead of either or. or been well, if you think about dishwasher doctor, detergent or, yes. uh, you know, laundry cleaning, you know, is that sustainable or not? What's it pumping and what's, what's it doing to the water supply? Yeah. And water, water is going to be a big issue going forward. And what are we doing to the water supply? Another one, by the way, who was really great at that is Indranui PepsiCo, who recognized the obesity problem and the direct connection with diabetes. And she wanted to, even though she had products like Pepsi-Cola and, uh, yeah, and potato chips that were, uh, you know, not necessarily the healthiest product, she created this whole healthy foods thing at, uh, at PepsiCo. And uh, I give her a lot of credit for really promoting that and creating literally hundreds of new products 
that were good for your health. So we, she had fun for you and good for you product. Still does. Exactly. Actually, actually, they had a line called True North, didn't they? Create a line of yeah. products called True North uh, that was. Yeah. And she said, you know, this is our True North. This True North is this is my True North of getting healthy foods out there for people. And she got a lot of criticism, but she's very tenacious and she stayed with us. Now, I want to go back to you for just a second. Because uh, what people don't realize that I think is important is that you were CEO and chairman of Medtronics and you took it to 60 billion in capitalization. At the end of that, your ability to leap to another CEO role would have been guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And for some weird, strange reason, you decided to give that whole life up and decide to basically become an academic or a teacher. And I'm just curious as to what went through your head? Because that seems like the, and you were very young, so what went through your head that would have caused you to make that huge leap that was of deep uncertainty as to whether you would be successful? All my life, thinking about being so, I'd studied CEOs and I find uh, with almost no exception, CEOs after 10 years don't do as well as they do in the first 10. And I said, you know, because a high tech company needs a new new fresh look at it every 10 years any company does in my opinion so it could be 12 years but i put a 10-year limit on being ceo i told the board i have no contract i don't want one but you know but you know i'll tell you the maximum i should serve is 10 years and i was 48 at the time so true to that uh, right to the day may 1st 2001 10 years of the day i turned it over to my successor and I literally walked out of there, I was chairman of the board, but I literally walked out of there with no plans, nothing to do, and took a, uh, rented a house in Provence <clears throat> with my wife, invited family and friends to come. I'd never been able to do that and just reflected. And I started writing a book that, as I told you, never got published. Uh, and with all my ideas about it from Medtronic and Purpose. And, hmm. And it did, but that's okay. Uh, that probably was premature. Anyway, it's probably good to, way too soon. But it got me thinking about what I want to do next. And so I thought about everything. I wanted government, international trade, a lot of areas of interest of mine. I didn't think about being CEO somewhere else. I didn't think about going into private equity like all the rest of the CEOs do. What I decided was if I can work with people leaders who are going to make a difference. Mm. Leaders have the greatest impact. It's like taking a stone and throwing it into a pond and watching a ripple. So if you can impact a leader's life, they can go impact thousands, tens of thousands of people. Some cases, like a Mary Barra, General Motors, who's one of my students, hundreds of thousands of people. And if you can do that well, the impact of that is staggering. So I decided to try my hand at teaching. I went to Switzerland, taught in two institutions over there, found out I loved it. I was offered some deanships. I didn't actually want to be a dean and try to corral cats and get them into the box or have them hate me because I wasn't an academic uh, <laughs> uh, or raise money, which I'm terrible at. I'd rather give money away than raise it. But okay. anyway, nonetheless, I decided I want to work with students. I want to work with leaders. I want to work with the real leaders. Both. Yeah. MBAs coming up, just starting their careers, and executives throughout their careers, all the way to CEOs. And so I came back, and uh, I did that for a year and a half. I loved teaching in Switzerland. Spent a stodge at yeah, Yale for four months as executive in residence, and then came to Harvard Business School, and it was like a godsend to me. 
and it's been the perfect kind of resting place for me from which to the launching pad from which to do the work I've done. Well, I just think it's such a, you know, in some ways it feels to me like that's such a beautiful expression of purpose or your purpose. Because you talk about wanting to have an impact on leaders who then impact many people. So it's that having that single point where you work with somebody that then impacts many, many people. And um, our, our, my organization's purpose is to wake up those who wake up the many, which is in some ways kind of similar. Oh, it's the same thing. That's great. Yeah. But if you think about it, I went to Medtronic, we had 4,000 employees. Today, the company's got almost 100,000. But when I walked out of there, I left my purpose behind. You know, I've still got this little medallion, but that's not my purpose. And I decided, you know, I got to turn it over to them to let them run it. They're doing a fabulous job carrying this forward. How can we impact lots of companies? And so, and if you start with the CEO, you have, as you know, like Paul Fullman, or Andrew, you know, you have a lot of impact if, if you work with the CEOs, but you can't always do that. Sometimes there are MBAs who grow up and have huge impact. So my purpose changed is my point. I had to find a whole new purpose. And so I so decided- you think your purpose became as you were working on it? As you, were, as you were sitting in Harvard Business yeah. School working to MBAs, how did you feel? What, what did you think your purpose has, had gotten morphed to? Well, Harvard Business School has a purpose to develop leaders who make a difference in the world. And being Kim Clark, who invited me to come there, was very big on this. And it had been cast aside before he came, and he talked about it all the time. And the current dean, Noria, actually taught authentic leadership with me for a number of years. Exactly. He's huge on this. So I found an alignment. See, if you can't find an alignment, you know, I didn't really find that alignment at Yale. If you can't find that alignment with the institution's purpose, you're in the wrong place. It's a huge message for everybody who might be listening about just, you know, how do you find a stage worth singing your song on and finding one that's inappropriate? Yeah, well said. Keep a stage worth singing your song on. I had sought that throughout my business career and tried to find that right place. Mm -hmm. And it took until I got to Medtronic and I was in my 40s. So it didn't, for me, it didn't happen like, out of the box, first job out. You know, it took me a while to find that place, uh, that stage, as you're calling. Well, it's interesting because I think, you know, your Honeywell journey was about doing everything that you thought that actually didn't matter, but you had to do that to discover what really did. And I think one of the interesting things about purpose is that we discover our purpose by when we don't feel connected to our purposes as important of a, a means of finding it because it's sort of, it's only then that we actually go looking for it, which is I think one of the challenges around uh, many of us in the journey is you can't lead from it if you don't know what it is, but most of us have to struggle in the desert for at least not 40 years, but you know, a little bit of time in the desert. Right, exactly. So one question is this. That's critical, by the way. That's not, I don't, we shouldn't pass that over too quick. That struggle is really essential. I remember, uh, you know, Viktor Frankl wrote a famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, after he got out of the Nazi concentration camps, came out right after the war in 46. You know, he talked, those who know their why can bear any, uh, can, can bear any how. In other words, if you had, you know, the how's not easy. You're going to get beaten up by the stock market. You get, these things are not going to go well. Your company's going to have a problem. But if you know your why, you stay with it, have that tenacity. I remember back to Paul Bowman. Uh, two years ago, and I wrote a case on this, 
the Group 3G in Brazil tried to take him over through Kraft Heinz. Yep, exactly. Bye-bye Unilever's purpose if that happened. In fact, bye-bye yep. Unilever. It was just going to be a group of 31-year-old Brazilian finance guys running the company. And, and Paul fought like hell to preserve that. And I've heard the story from his people that unified, you know, 125,000 people came together. Around, this is our purpose. And so if there's ever any question about it, that brought everyone together. And so I think sometimes you need a wake up call, Nick, for that to happen. So speaking, well, um, purpose, when we, you and I started working together 15 years ago, purpose was one of many topics for which I don't know if we realized what the, we, although we saw it at the top of the, it's defined that true north or the North Star, um, we were still sort of playing with it. And today, you know, we hear so much stuff. When you the World Economic Forum events the last two or three years, purpose, purpose, purpose. And do you, what's your sense for why purpose has gone from being just something you needed to have to being so much more prevalent? Well, a good example is Larry Fink, who runs the world's largest uh, financial fund, $7 trillion. And he said, you know, yeah, you have to make money to survive. But any company that doesn't have clarity of purpose will not be sustained long term. And I think he's right. And so companies are now realizing you have to, but it also has to do with the key factor we've overlooked in companies. We've ridden on the backs of our employees. We've drowned them down. Do you think anyone could live on a minimum wage of seven and a quarter an hour? Are you kidding? It's ridiculous. Right. Uh, and so we've realized we're not, we got all these consultants and middle managers running around instead of focusing on how do we motivate the people and the people are not motivated by 391 a share. They're only motivated by a sense of purpose. And so your job as a leader is to convey that to them. I think CEOs, the people we're talking with today that come to our courses at Harvard and people I work with independently that are really waking up to this. Yes, that's what that's my job as a leader to convey that sense of purpose. We'll let the finance people worry about the numbers, but my job is to convey that to people every day. And just about the time you get sick of hearing yourself saying it is when people are starting to think that you're serious. You know, it took me a while to convince people of Medtronic. Oh, that I really got it, you know? Yeah. Okay, so I I, I think that's helpful because it's a question people have asked me, but one of the things that's as we've been talking about this. You know, when we originally were working on authentic leadership, I think both of us felt that it was a way of responding to the volatile, uncertain, chaotic, ambiguous world of the VUCA world. Mm -hmm. Leading was finding, and where did you find solid ground if the external world is getting shaky as you find it inside yeah. yourself? Um, one of the books that you wrote, which I thought was probably incredibly important when it came out right after the Great Recession, was a book called Seven Lessons for Leading in Crisis. And I have wow. it right here for Thank you. Me. See, it's got the end pointing your true north. <laughs> it does. North no, exactly. It's got your true north right here. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, but here we are today sitting with the coronavirus and we look at the stock market doing the same gyrations as it was back in 2008. We look at businesses that are dealing with enormous fragility in anything that was broken that they were hiding is now impossible to hide. And so I'm just wondering when you think about the model that you came up with uh, from the book, which um, 
has about seven lessons to it. If there's anything around that that you think would be helpful to remind people around, how do they lead in this time of great uncertainty? Yeah. Well, the first is you have to face the reality. And maybe the reality is you're not gonna make the numbers this quarter. You're Apple and you're not gonna get the products out to sell iPhones. You can't get the production out. Uh, maybe United Airlines, you had to cancel all your flights to China for the next six months. And uh, with United withdrew all their guidance because who knows what's gonna happen. But you have to face that reality. Forget about trying to make the quarterly numbers and a lot of people are saying, oh, everything's going to be fine. It's not going to be an impact. No, don't look at it that way. Say, we don't know what's going to happen. We have a big business in China. Medtronic has a big business. Many other companies I work with, I just said, I talked to a CEO the other day, 25% of his business in China. I said, you have to just go tell the market, we don't know. If, you know, we don't know the impact. And so when you're facing the unknown, you have to face that reality. But then you have to, the first thing you have to do, do everything you can to protect your people. So I was supposed to be at a conference in Mexico uh, for Citigroup this week, giving a major address. It got canceled a couple of weeks ago. They said, we can't take the risk. Good for them. You know, we can't, even though there's been no sign of coronavirus, no sign of they didn't want to take the risk. So I think you can find a lot of companies are, are really retrenching and saying what's important. First thing is to protect our people. That's okay. much more important than protecting the numbers. Okay. So face reality and really say, look, what's really going on and don't yep. sugarcoat it. Yeah. Really protect your people and make sure that your people are taken care of. What are some other things from, I mean, if I looked at the, there's don't be an atlas, get the world off your shoulders, deep for the root cause, get ready for the long haul, never waste a good crisis. You're in the spotlight, follow your true north and off, go on an offensive, focus on winning now. Those were sort of the key lessons. Yeah, yeah. So, which of those do you sort of say now is just really important as well for people or leaders to think through so that they can step into a way of leading authentically in these great times of uncertainty? Get ready for the long haul. These, say more. You know, a crisis does, you know, this one showed up out of nowhere. Sometimes crises come from your own making, like a Wells Fargo or a Boeing, you know, uh, rushing a new plane to market or trying to right. have the wrong metrics. But uh, sometimes this comes out of nowhere. You, no one created this, it's not your own making. Exactly. But now you've got a job to do, to try to address this in the very best way you can and make, but don't think it's gonna be solved. Everyone's oh, I'll be solved in 90 days. You don't know that, you absolutely do not know. So in uncertainty, you really have to focus on how are we gonna fix this for the long term? How are we gonna ensure? By the way, you and I are talking over Zoom right now. You can talk yeah. over Zoom to China and have that meeting. You don't have to fly all the way to Shanghai to have a bunch of PowerPoint charts in some fancy hotel or conference room shown to you. You can do it like this. So maybe we should rethink some of these things. Maybe we need to rethink our business model and how we operate. And I think that's really important. I think you've got to think about the, stay with your strategy. Forget about the short-term numbers. As, as I, uh, you know, mm -hmm. once told the CEO Bone, forget about the numbers. What's important is your relationship with your customers. And that's what's important here. If you're in the hospital bit, on the board of Mayo, what's important? Mayo has to protect every patient who has anything to do with Mayo. It not only treat them, but make sure that there's nothing being spread inside a Mayo facility. You're on the board, right? Hospitals are often germ centers when you go into a room. They better make sure 
those rooms are perfectly clean. That's Mayo's job. Number one, it's not about making profits this year. And I feel pretty strongly about that, that, that we've got to get past that kind of short-term focus. You're looking for the long-term, not just survivability, but the long-term success and effectiveness of your company. Uh, forget about the short-term. Well, my sense was when, when I was re-looking at the book yesterday before this call, one of the things I really liked about what it really talked about was is how do you use what you could perceive as a unfortunate reality as an opportunity mm -hmm. to do the things that you normally wouldn't get the opportunity to really yeah. think through and do major rethinking about the structural setup of how your business is operating and how do you set yourself up to leapfrog to the future where if you're successful all the time, nobody wants to touch anything. Right. So, you know, it depends on what business you're in. If you're in the healthcare business, maybe you're thinking about those vaccines. Maybe you're thinking about a way to address the health issues. Uh, but like I say, if you're in the travel business, maybe you need to rethink, you know, the, I was with the CEO of a cruise line the other day and, you know, the, the former head of cruise line. And, and I can tell you that's, that's a big issue because they're germ centers. So you need to really rethink uh, your whole business model. Unlike Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, who refused to rethink his business model, you got to use his crisis. Because, by the way, a crisis is a real test for any leader. I'll tell you, yeah. things are going like this up, up, and away. It's easy to look good, and you know, you miss the numbers or beat them by a penny. This is all kind of nonsense for me. What's really important is how do you respond in a crisis? And people look to you to lead. You do need a team around you, but you need to step up. You can't hide in your office. A lot of leaders in a crisis hide in their office, uh, like Tony Hayward of British Petroleum did after the gusher in the Gulf, and he wouldn't go there for six weeks, you know, and uh, then he said, you know, well, I just want my life back, you know, and, well, 11 people died, they aren't getting their life back, but, you know, you got to step up and be there. Your presence is what counts, mm -hmm. and uh, so in any crisis, people are looking to you to lead. You can't just be the guy in the corner office that disappears. You got to be out with the truth. And that gets back to the head and the heart metaphor that we were right. talking about. My, my sense is that what you're talking about, my experience of you, is being present isn't just intellectually present, but really bringing your full self and engaging with people and having dialogues and talking about the reality and talking and having people be able to have a dialogue and feeling safe, trying to create the psychological safety in a world of incredible uncertainty on the external side. Mm -hmm. Psychological safety you create, the more people are going to be willing to then do the risky thing they need to do internally. And I think that that's much of what you're talking about. You gotta be out with the troops. But I Absolutely. think people that are not with the troops, like great military leaders out there with their troops, they're getting shot at too, and not hiding back in the headquarters. And I think that's true in business. You gotta be with your people. And you can't be with everyone all the time, but you gotta be out there and know what's going on. And uh, that's the only way you're gonna find out. And that's the only way you can lead through a crisis. But if you lose sight of your company's purpose, why are we in business? What is the purpose of our being in business? Then that's really essential that you keep that in the yeah. forefront in your own mind, as well as everyone around you. In some ways, crisis forces you to have to look at that and make those yeah. choices from that place. Yes. I want to bring this uh, beautiful experience to a close, but I have a special gift that I would like to give 
both you and me and whoever's going to listen to this is that um, there's a particular poem that uh, Love After Love that was written by Derek Walcott and it actually was the one that he recited when he received the Nobel Prize for Poetry. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that for whatever reason that poem speaks to both of us because we both put it in our books. And my thought was that what we would do, let's see if you're okay with doing this, Bill, is that we would each uh, read out loud one line and we would go back and forth. Okay. And I would love you to say, what is that? What is this thing speaking to you and saying? Is that, are you willing to try this? Sure. So why don't you start? The time will come when with elation you will meet yourself. Arriving at your own door, in your own mirror. Each will smile at the other's welcome. Well, now, who is yourself? I, I think that's the first question Walcott's asking. Uh, and then he goes on to say, you know, uh, and, and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you. Well, you know, that's what we've done. I, I was pushing away all my negative qualities back in my Honeywell days, like I'm impatient. Uh, I'm too aggressive getting things. I'm too direct. And I had to realize, I used to blame these on my father, lacking tact. Uh, okay. Actually, I realized these are my qualities, not his. He's not the one that's impatient. I am. I'm the one that's too direct. I'm the one that lacks tact sometimes. Uh, but that's part of, I have to own that part of myself. I can't just push that away and say, you know, go away, go away. It doesn't go away. And so as it says, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart, take down the love letters from the bookshelf. That will let you finish it. The photographs, the desperate notes, peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. You know, we, we have to come back to ourselves. Feast on your life, to me, is look what a great life you have. Stop trying to be something different than you are. Be who you are. I heard this poem, <clears throat> actually, it was recited by David White in the Poetry of Self-Compassion. I heard David White at a Mikhail Gorbachev conference. But I was just <clears throat> listening to, now get this, listening to a tape in my car back around, oh, somewhere uh, during my... Uh, uh, honey, uh, during, during my Mentronic days, and I was driving on a freeway back to my office, and I actually pulled off to record what I'd heard. How absurd is that? I could go back to my office, listen to the tape again, and write it all down. But anyway, I pulled off to write because it had so much meaning, the idea that I've been pushing these things away from me all my life, and I just had to own who Bill was and not try to be somebody different than who I was. Mm. And that if you don't like me the way I am, that's okay. You know, uh, not everyone's going to like me. That's okay. No, seriously. You can't, you know, you can't please all. And Lincoln said you can't please all the people all the time, so stop trying. But I had to be who I was, not some kind of image of something mm. different than I was. And so that's why it was really important to me to pull back and think about, hey, uh, can I own myself? Can I be myself? Mm. Well, so what does it mean to you? Well, uh, this is wait. Um, you know, I, I, I language my purpose is to wake you, to truly wake you up and have you finally, finally be home. Mm -hmm. I feel like this poem is about the fact that that place that is really who we are is the home that we have been waiting and looking for our whole lives. Mm -hmm. 
that's been waiting for us, but we have to go retrieve it from our journey in this life. And I think mm -hmm. the, the beautiful journey that you created in the architecture of authentic leadership for me was for me the bringing, how do you bring people home? I mean, in some ways, that's why I've felt like for the last 15 years that this material speaks to me, is that I just find bringing people to that place, feasting on their life and feasting on who they are as opposed to chasing after the dog bone or the 360 or what the 360 tells them they should be that they're not or whatever it is, is truly the opportunity to slow down and breathe. But I also want to just say to you, Bill, that you know, my ability to do this has been so deeply impacted by my relationship with you. And the fact that this is our, my first of the series of podcasts and that you were the first one to respond and say, let's just do this thing. I thought it was kind of poignant to what our journey's been together. And mm -hmm. I want to thank you for supporting me on this journey. And you still have your hair, but there you go. Uh, one more line. Uh, one of my favorite stories is the story of the prodigal son. So the, the young, the young boy, the young, younger son gets half of his father's wealth and he goes out and profligate and he spends it all and he finds himself, you know, he's doing all kinds of terrible things and then he can't find anything. So he's down eating with the swine. That's all he can do. And there's a great line in there that says when he came to himself, and I think it's when you hit that difficult time that crisis in your life, that crucible, that maybe strips away, you know, all the excitement, it's like standing naked in the breeze and you discover who I really am at my core. You forget about the titles, you forget about the money, you forget about the adulation, you forget about any awards you've got and you think about who am I at the end of the day, if I had a death sentence of an illness, yeah. who am I? And that's when you come to yourself. So I had that awakening when I was at Honeywell and I saw this uh, ugly flash of Bill George in the mirror and going the wrong way because I was chasing uh, that brass ring instead mm. of deciding what is it yeah. I really want. And uh, it wasn't a title. It was a place where I could make a difference in the world, which is something I'd want to do since I was five, but I'd gotten off track. And we often do get off track. And so I think an opportunity like this is to bring people back to their true north, to their sense of who they are, so they can find their purpose, their north star. Mm, beautiful way to bring this to a close. And my hope for everyone listening that this helps do exactly that. So Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the rest of you, um, may you have a fabulous day and I hope you look forward to the other podcast journeys that will be on as we go discovering how do you lead from purpose. Thank you. Thank you.